Welcome to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Each week we examine the latest appeals decided by the Connecticut Supreme Court and the Connecticut Appellate Court. We focus on three areas of law, criminal law, personal injury law, and family law, each sponsored by a firm that concentrates in that type of law. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and get the newest episode each week and stay up to date on the latest case law. You can also visit our website, ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com, and register to get an alert every time a new episode is released. And now, let's get into the latest decisions after a quick word from our first sponsor. Next up, criminal law cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a criminal defense or civil rights attorney, the lawyers at Ruan Attorneys should be the first firm you turn to. Our lawyers handle criminal cases in every courthouse in the state, from juvenile cases through arguing and winning in the Connecticut Supreme Court, and they welcome your referrals. Our trial team is led by attorney Jim Ruane, one of the few board-certified criminal trial specialists in the state. And Ruane Attorneys has the experience and relationships to handle any type of criminal case you throw at them. Our civil rights team is led by attorney Dan Lage, twice selected as an award-winning lawyer by the Connecticut Law Tribune. What's more, Ruane Attorneys is always available to consult with fellow attorneys on criminal law issues at any time. Put the power of over 500 five-star reviews to work for your criminal case referrals by trusting Ruane Attorneys with your referral. Visit RuaneAttorneys.com for more information or email our team at referral at RuaneAttorneys.com. Welcome back to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast, where we read the cases so you don't have to. I'm Dan Lage, back again bringing you the latest developments in the area of criminal law. We have one case this week, and it deals with a topic that has been quite extensively litigated throughout the years at both the trial court level and the appellate court level. It's the concept of possession. Whether it's drugs or guns, defining possession is something that has been hotly debated, and this case continues that debate. State of Connecticut versus Amelia Rhodes. The citation is SC20070. Officially released in March of 2020, but published on October 13th. Here are your facts. The defendant had been driving a car with a passenger, Lamar Spann. The passenger, Mr. Spann, was a drug dealer with whom the defendant had a long-standing relationship. So the two drive to a large social gathering, and Spann gets out of the car and fires multiple gunshots from a gun that he had been carrying. He then re-enters the car and instructs the defendant to drive. Police officers in the scene witnessed the shooting and a high-speed chase ensued, which ended with a car crash and the defendant and Mr. Spann both apprehended. The defendant was charged in a substitute information in two parts, and the first part, for the relevant purposes of this discussion, contained the charge of having a weapon in a motor vehicle. The second part of the information, commonly referred to as the Part B, charged the defendant with criminal possession of a firearm. There was a jury verdict of guilty on both of those counts, and subsequently the court rendered a judgment in accordance with those verdicts. The defendant appealed to the appellate court, and the appeal was transferred pursuant to Section 51-199 to the Supreme Court. The defendant challenged her conviction of criminal possession of a firearm in violation of Connecticut General Statute 53A-217, and having a weapon in a motor vehicle in violation of Connecticut General Statute 29-38. Let's go to Claim 1. 
Claim one, the defendant claimed that the state failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that she, quote, possessed, unquote, a firearm and, therefore, that there was insufficient evidence to convict her of criminal possession. Now, the standard of review for an insufficiency of the evidence claim is quite commonly known as the court, before overturning a jury verdict for insufficient evidence, must view that evidence in the light most favorable to sustaining the verdict. And then it must conclude that no reasonable jury could arrive at the conclusion that the jury in this case did. So what did the defendant argue? The defendant argued that the evidence established only that she and the firearm were in the same car at the same time. And that, on that basis alone, the jury could not reasonably infer that she was in possession of the firearm. The court ultimately held that the defendant was wrong and concluded that the record contained sufficient circumstantial evidence beyond just mere proximity that the defendant knew the firearm was in the car, was in a position to control it, and intended to control it. They also concluded that there was a sufficient evidence from which the jury could have found that the defendant constructively possessed the firearm. So how did the court get there? Well, let's take a look at the statute, 53A217. A defendant is guilty of criminal possession of a firearm if, one, the defendant possesses a firearm, two, the defendant is a convicted felon, and three, the firearm is operable. So the fight here is whether or not she possessed the firearm for the purposes of that first element. Connecticut General Statute 53A-3 subsection 2 defines the word possess as having physical possession or otherwise to exercise domain or control over tangible property. Therefore, possession may be actual or constructive. Constructive possession is possession without direct physical contact. You can see State versus Johnson, 316, Connecticut, 45. That's in 2015. Constructive possession is not the manifestation of an act of control, but instead it is the act of being in position of control, coupled with the requisite mental intent. State versus Hill, 201 Con, 505, 1986. It's important to the defendant's claim, Hill, that the court observed that intent is often inferred from conduct and from the cumulative effect of the circumstantial evidence and rational inferences drawn therein. So now back to this case, to establish constructive possession, the government is required to present direct or circumstantial evidence to show some connection or nexus individually linking the defendant to the contraband. That's State versus Johnson again. Johnson said that under the doctrine of non-exclusive possession, more than one person can possess contraband. So the court adhered to the settled understanding of constructive possession because the defendant didn't ask the court in this case to depart from it. And this was a big deal in this opinion, that this argument was not raised, an argument of vagueness or departing from the established uh, case law. And so the court's bound by the legislature's definition and the court's prior decisions. A review of the evidence presented several different circumstances that tended to support that inference, namely that the defendant had knowledge of and intent to control the firearm, and that our law requires for finding of constructive possession, including facts and including inferences that reasonably permit the jury to conclude that Ms. Rhodes had the ability to, quote, Go and get the gun. 
The jury reasonably could have inferred that the defendant had knowledge of the gun based on the evidence, that Mr. Spann exited the car openly carrying the gun in his hand, and based on the fact that the defendant knew that Mr. Spann was a drug dealer and that he often carried a gun, that also tended to provide circumstantial evidence for an inference. There were four different circumstances, in fact, in which a jury could reasonably rely that tended to support the defendant was intentionally in possession of or control over this firearm. The first one is her control of the car. So she was the one driving and thereby controlling the vehicle that she knew contained a gun. And that suggested that she was able to go and get the gun if she wanted. One who owns or exercises dominion or control over a motor vehicle in which contraband is concealed may be deemed to possess the contraband. A citation for that is State versus De Los Santos, 211 Connecticut 258. The second circumstance that the jury could have reasonably relied upon is her flight from the police. The jury could have reasonably found that her attempt at flight coming right after Mr. Spann fired his weapon and jumped back in the car indicated a consciousness of guilt stemming from the fact that she knew the gun was in the vehicle. The jury could have reasonably inferred from her efforts to maneuver around the squad cars and the ensuing car chase that those were deliberate efforts to prevent the police from finding that gun. Thus, she has dominion or or control over it. The court noted her prior felony convictions being relevant, particularly in light of her knowledge that it was illegal for her to possess a gun. It was reasonable for the jury to infer that her flight was motivated by the belief that she had broken the law by possessing a gun and her desire to escape prosecution for it. The third factor, her relationship with Mr. Spann. The state's overarching theory of the whole case was that the defendant intended to facilitate the shooting by acting as Mr. Spann's getaway driver. The prosecutor specifically asked the jury to draw that inference on the basis of the evidence of the defendant's seven-year-long relationship with him. The jury could have reasonably inferred that the defendant and Mr. Spann were not just close friends, but willing partners in a joint criminal venture, specifically that she was driving him and his weapon to and from the scene of a shooting. Look at United States versus Perez. This is an 11th Circuit case, 661 F.3D 568. A defendant's knowing participation in a joint criminal venture in which a particular firearm is intended to play a central part does permit a jury to reasonably conclude that the defendant constructively possessed that same gun. This is true even if the, if the defendant never intended to use the firearm herself. The next factor is her physical access to the gun. The defendant in this case sat within arm's reach of the gun throughout the entire preceding afternoon. There was never any evidence that the gun was anywhere other than in the area of the front seat of the car. The defendant didn't contend otherwise, and therefore a jury could have reasonably inferred that she was physically in a position to control the weapon, given her proximity to it. And on the basis of those four things, remember, physical access to the gun, her relationship with the person who shot the weapon, her flight from the police, and her dominion and control over the car, the court could not conclude that no reasonable jury could have found that the defendant was in a possession of a firearm. And although such facts might establish constructive possession, the absence of this evidence does not require the conclusion that there was, in fact, insufficient evidence. The defendant introduced Mr. Spann's testimony that 
he had exclusive possession of the gun during the entire 90 minutes and that he actively hid the gun from the defendant. However, the jury does not have to credit that evidence, which was based entirely on the testimony of an unreliable witness and was also at odds with the rest of the evidence of the day's events and the relationship between Mr. Spann and the defendant, which suggested that their interests were aligned. Under this court's definition of possession and viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to sustaining the verdict, the court concluded that the facts and inferences reasonably drawn from those facts sufficiently established the defendant's constructive possession of the firearm beyond a reasonable doubt. The court also declined to adopt the defendant's position that the non-exclusive possession doctrine did not apply in this case. Because even if it's assumed that Mr. Spann actually possessed the firearm for the entire afternoon, there's nothing in that doctrine itself, its policy, or its application in this or other jurisdictions to suggest that it is limited to cases involving constructive possessors only. The defendant's second claim is that there was insufficient evidence to support her conviction for having a weapon in the motor vehicle in violation of Section 29-38. Her argument is that contrary to the legislature's intent, Connecticut courts have misconstrued the phrase knowingly has to criminalize mere knowledge of a firearm's presence in a vehicle that is owned, operated, or occupied by the defendant. The defendant asks the court to overrule State v. Mbain, 17 Connecticut Appellate 243, in which the court interpreted the statute, quote, the statute is not concerned with possession or ownership of a weapon, but rather aims to penalize those who know that there is a weapon inside a motor vehicle, unquote. The defendant asks the court to interpret the phrase knowingly has to mean knowingly possesses. Now, even if the court were to assume, as they write in the opinion, without deciding that knowingly has means knowingly possesses, constructive possession of a firearm would still support a conviction under the defendant's proposed reading of the statute. Because knowledge is a necessary element of constructive possession, a person who constructively possesses an object also knowingly possesses it. And so the court holds that in light of the conclusion that there was sufficient evidence that the defendant constructively possessed a firearm in connection with her conviction under the previous count, the court reaches the same conclusion to support her conviction on this issue. So in the end, the court affirms the conviction without even reaching the merits of the argument. There was a dissent from Justice Eckert who dissented from part one of the opinion, that's the criminal possession count, because the evidence was not sufficient to support the conviction for criminal possession in his view. Justice Ecker says that reversal in this case is required because there are significant evidentiary gaps that cannot be fulfilled without resorting to impermissible speculation. That does it for this week. I'm your host once again, Dan Lage. I'll see you back here next week with the latest developments in the area of criminal law from the Appellate and Supreme Court of Connecticut. Thanks again for listening to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast, where we read the cases so you don't have to. Up next, Ryan McKean. Next up, injury law cases. 
If you know someone who has been injured, Connecticut Trial Firm can help. Our lawyers handle car accidents, malpractice, dog bite, and premises liability cases across the state of Connecticut. Our lawyers have achieved multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements. Our trial team has the experience and the resources to make a difference. Connecticut trial firm attorneys are always available to consult with fellow attorneys on injury law issues at any time. Put the power of over 124 five-star reviews to work for your personal injury referrals by trusting the team at Connecticut trial firm. Visit cttrialfirm.com for more information or call us 24-7 at 860-471-8333. Hi, it's Connecticut personal injury attorney Ryan McKean, and I'm here today to talk about the Sandra Harvey administratrix versus the Department of Correction um, uh, Supreme Court case, an opinion, a 7-0 opinion handed down by Justice McDonald on October 9th, 2020. And it's a pretty straightforward prisoner malpractice, prisoner medical malpractice claim with just a little bit of an issue that comes up regarding the statute of limitations. And what happened here is that in this case, Boucher Boucher became ill in 2011 while incarcerated, and he was diagnosed with cancer in 2013. He then files a notice of claim with the claim commissioner seeking permission to file a medical malpractice action against the state on the basis of allegations related to the delay in providing diagnostic treatment. Now, the claims commissioner authorized Boucher to sue in July of 2015. Unfortunately, he dies as a result of his cancer in September of 2015. And then, some 14 months after the authorization was obtained from the claims commissioner, the plaintiff, as administratrix of Boucher's estate, brought action for wrongful death against the state. And what happened in both the trial court and the appellate court is that the case was dismissed for failing to comply with the statute of limitations, which says, and contained in Connecticut General Statute 4-160, which says suits authorized by the claims commissioner must be brought within one year. Now, the the plaintiff in this case tried to claim that the two-year statute of limitations contained in 52-555A um, applies. Um, they um, um, saying that it should have been two years. Um, and the court rejected that argument. Um, the court, um, said that a plaintiff who brings a wrongful death action against the state must comply with both the two-year statute of limitation for wrongful death articulated in 52-555A and the one-year time limitation in the claims commissioner's authorization articulated in 4-160D. And because uh, the plaintiff only complied with the two-year statute of limitations and not the limitation period articulated in 4-160D, the Supreme Court affirmed the judgment of the appellate court and the trial court. So, um, you know, again, prisoners' rights cases are always very difficult. Claims commissioners' cases are very difficult. There have been lengthy delays on um, 
you know, claims in front of the claims commissioner and issues. So it's really important for practitioners to make sure that they do file suit within that one year period that they are authorized to do so, or under, you know, Harvey, uh, the Harvey case, uh, that case will be dismissed as um, barred by the statute of limitations. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe and we will uh, talk again next week. Next up, family law cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a lawyer who focuses exclusively on divorce and other family matters, Rich Rockland is your guy. Rich handles cases all across the state of Connecticut, including the state appellate court, and welcomes your referrals. Rich will personally handle the case and will be attentive to all your clients' needs. Family litigation is stressful, and you don't need your referral stress being taken out on you. Rich's goal is to counsel his clients through a family law case with an eye towards resolving the issue in a manner that protects their interests while minimizing their stress and yours. If you would like to discuss a referral of a family law matter, please contact us at 860-357-9158. We have virtual consults available and in-person consults in West Hartford Center and welcome the call from fellow attorneys. Hello everyone, it's Rich Rockland. Um, two cases this week um, from the appellate court. First one is Ross versus Ross. Uh, officially released October 13th, 2020. Uh, the opinion was by Justice Keller. The party's marriage uh, was dissolved in 2013. The party's separation agreement required the defendant to pay the plaintiff 40% of his annual gross base cash salary and 25% of his gross cash bonus as unallocated alimony and child support from September, from September 2016 to March of 2023. At some point, the defendant filed a motion for modification in which he sought to reduce his unallocated alimony and child support payments, alleging that there was a substantial change in circumstances because two of the party's children had reached the age of majority. The trial court granted the motion for modification and ordered that the percentage of annual gross-based salary that the defendant is obligated to pay the plaintiff as unallocated alimony and child support be reduced to 37.5%, down from 40%, retroactive to the date the motion was filed. The court also ordered the defendant to pay $27,500 of the plaintiff's attorney's fees. Defendant appealed from the post-judgment orders of the trial court modifying the original unallocated alimony and child support order and awarding plaintiff attorney's fees. First claim, the defendant claimed that the court abused its discretion when it determined that the amount of the modified unallocated alimony and child support award. The uh, standard of review is uh, as we know, is the um, the court will not disturb the trial court orders unless the trial court has abused its legal discretion or its findings have no reasonable basis in law. The defendant argued um, that in ruling on its motion for modification, the court failed to unbundle the child support and alimony awards from the unallocated order that was effective on September 16, 2016, and required him to pay a percentage of both his gross base cash salary and gross cash bonus as unallocated child support and alimony, and in failing to determine what portion of the unallocated order was child support, the court failed to consider the child support guidelines. The rule is that in modifying the original unallocated alimony and child support order, that court was required to unbundle the child support award from the alimony award and to consider and apply the child support guidelines, 
and thereby to make a finding as to the presumptive amount of child support payable by the defendant to the plaintiff for the relevant dates, and if necessary, a finding as to whether, on the basis of the child support guidelines, those amounts were inequitable or inappropriate and a deviation from the guidelines was appropriate. The holding. The court held that the underlying court, the trial court, erred in modifying the unallocated alimony and child support award without unbundling the child support award from the alimony award, and further erred in failing to consider and to apply the child support guidelines. The court's failure to unbundle the child support and alimony awards from the unallocated order and failure to apply the child support guidelines required reversal and a remand for further proceedings. Some things to think about. Section 46B-86A provides the trial court with continuing jurisdiction to modify alimony and support orders. Even though an unallocated order incorporates alimony and child support without precisely describing specific amounts for each component, the unallocated order necessarily includes a portion attributable to child support in an amount sufficient to satisfy the child support guidelines. That's a Tomlinson v. Tomlinson quote. Um, to decide a motion to modify on the basis of an order of unallocated child support and alimony, the trial court must determine what part of the original decree constituted modifiable child support and what part constituted alimony. Again, quoting Tomlinson versus Tomlinson. In unbundling the allocated order, the court will also need to ascertain the intent of the parties. In modifying the unallocated child support and alimony order in a subsequent proceeding, a trial court may consider the same factors applied in the initial determination to assess any changes in the party's circumstances since the last court order. 46B215BC mandates that such guidelines shall be considered in addition and not in lieu of the criteria for such awards established in 46B84 and 86. Furthermore, a trial court is required to make a child support award in accordance with the applicable statutes and guidelines, and any deviation from the guidelines must be accompanied by a specific finding on the record that the guidelines would be inequitable or inappropriate. The fact that a party may have requested unallocated alimony and support does not alter the obligations of the trial court in making it its award of support. That's Tuckman v. Tuckman. Finally, the trial court's finding that there was a substantial change in circumstances since the dissolution and original orders due to the fact that two of the party's minor children had reached the age of majority gave the court authority pursuant to 46B86 to modify the unallocated alimony and child support order. However, pursuant to Tomlinson v. Tomlinson, after determining there was substantial change in circumstances, the court was required to determine what part of the unallocated order constituted child support and what part constituted alimony. The court did not take the necessary steps to unbundle the 2013 child support and alimony orders relative to the change in the orders that became effective in September of 2016. Instead, the court merely reduced the unallocated order based on the defendant's gross base cash salary to be paid by him to the plaintiff by 2.5% without any reference or application to the child support guidelines. As such, the court's order failed to apply the child support guidelines in determining what portion of the 2013 unallocated order that went into effect in September of 2016 constituted the presumptive amount of child support for the two children who were minors. Having failed to determine the presumptive amount of child support under the guidelines, the court was no longer in a position to make a finding as to whether the dissolution court in 2013 determined that application of the guidelines in 2013 would have been inappropriate in this case, thereby justifying a possible deviation. The amount of child support intended at the time of dissolution to be payable in 2016 from both the defendant's gross salary and gross bonus income should have been subtracted from the total amount of the unallocated 2016 award, and the remaining sum should have constituted the alimony award that became effective in September of 2016. 
As such, the court acted also acted improperly when it stated that its modification addressed the youngest child attaining the age of 18, but it made its order retroactive to December 6, 2018, a date when the youngest child was still a minor. The court was required to unbundle the allocated order, simply stating that the modification took into account the youngest child would soon turn 18 was insufficient. And the second claim, the defendant claimed that the court abuses discretion by ordering him to pay 27500 of the plaintiff's attorney's fees. Holding, in light of the conclusion that the case must be remanded for further proceedings, the court did not reach the merits of this claim because the issue of attorney's fees should be revisited on remand. Hello, everyone. Uh, second case this week is Christopher... Kasaragi versus Paula Kasaragi, officially released uh, October 13th, 2020. The opinion was written by Justice Prescott. The facts. Party's marriage was dissolved in 2014 and the judgment of dissolution incorporated by reference an agreement entered into by the parties. The plaintiff was current with his unallocated support obligation through the end of 2015, but when he was diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, which required open heart surgery in a recovery period of four months, he unilaterally began to reduce his payment from $16,667 a month to $10,000 per month. In February 2016, the plaintiff filed a motion seeking a downward modification of the unallocated support order due to his decline in health. And he also filed a motion seeking relief from the payment terms of the lump sum alimony property distribution. In March 2016, the defendant filed several motions for contempt and filed objections to the plaintiff's motions. The procedural history. The plaintiff appealed from the judgment of the trial court rendered on three post-dissolution motions for contempt. One, the trial court granted two of the motions for contempt because it concluded that the plaintiff had willfully failed to pay his full unallocated alimony and child support payments or to make the required payments toward the lump sum property distribution award. And the trial court denied the third motion for contempt that alleged the plaintiff willfully violated the party's separation agreement by making a post-dissolution investment in a CrossFit franchise, but nonetheless made a finding that the investment had breached the party's agreement. Claim 1. Plaintiff claimed that the court improperly granted two of the defendant's motions for contempt, specifically that the court improperly found him in willful noncompliance with its unallocated support obligation and with the lump sum property distribution order conclusive and unrebutted evidence that he lacked the ability to pay because of a reduction in his annual earnings. The standard of review. As you recall, for contempt, if the underlying court order was sufficiently clear and unambiguous, the court must determine whether the trial court abused its discretion in issuing a judgment of contempt, which includes a review of the trial court's determination of whether the violation was willful or excused by a good faith dispute or misunderstanding. Inability to pay as a defense to contempt finding. Whether a party has established his inability to pay is a question of fact which is subject to the clearly erroneous standard of review. The rule. It was an abuse of discretion for the trial court not to have considered the issue of the plaintiff's ability to pay or to have rejected that defense out of hand before finding that the plaintiff's failure to meet his financial obligation was willful. Holding. The court's findings that the plaintiff engaged in willful violations of his financial obligations was clearly erroneous. The, the appellate court reversed the court's granting of the defendant's motion for contempt and the resulting remedial orders and remanded for further proceeding on the motions, including a new hearing to properly identify any arrearage that may be owed to the defendant and to craft new remedial orders as appropriate. The analysis. A party who was unable to comply with financial orders contained in a dissolution judgment due to a demonstrable inability to pay has a proper defense to a claim for contempt. 
The plaintiff unquestionably raised as a defense before the trial court that he no longer could fully satisfy his financial obligations as set forth in the dissolution judgment because he had suffered a considerable drop in income due to his health problems. In support of his defense, the plaintiff provided testimony about his finance and entered into evidence his federal tax returns for 2014 through 16, which showed his net income declined from 474128 in 2014 when the agreement was executed to approximately $220,000 in 2015 and $250,000 in 2016. A financial affidavit from 2018 calculated his gross income, his gross income at $282,880 with an annual net income of $180,700. The trial court made no indication in its memorandum of decision that it did not credit any of the plaintiff's financial information and the defendant provided no contrary financial records to the court. The plaintiff's yearly unallocated support obligation to the defendant alone totaled $200,000, as well as additional financial obligations under the dissolution judgment. The plaintiff's financial obligations clearly exceeded the income attributed to him by the trial court. The trial court failed to set forth any analysis of the plaintiff's finances, either at the date of the alleged either the date of the alleged or as of the date of the hearing on the defendant's motions, and it did not make a specific finding as to the defendant's ability to pay either at the time of his motion or the time of the judgment. The trial court's finding of willfulness stood in direct contradiction to the facts found by the court. The court failed to give due consideration to whether the plaintiff had the ability to pay his financial obligations, particularly in light of the court's finding, express findings regarding the amount of the plaintiff's net income. The second claim on appeal. The plaintiff also claimed that the court improperly determined his investment in the CrossFit franchise breached the party's agreement. The plaintiff argued that the court misinterpreted the relevant portion of the party's agreement. The court held that because the agreement limited the plaintiff's right to make investments only in the event that he was not current on his lump sum payment obligations and no such obligation existed at the time he invested in the CrossFit franchise, the court's finding was clearly erroneous and a misinterpretation of the express terms of the agreement. Because the court denied the motion for contempt, it is unnecessary to reverse the court's judgment on this motion. Do you want to get into social media marketing? Unsure of where to begin? The FirmFlex DIY plan was created for small firm and solo lawyers who want to start social media marketing for their firm but can't commit to the large budgets many agencies charge. In just five minutes a day, with the help of the FirmFlex coaches, you get daily ideas, weekly themes, hashtags, and stock images you can use to post on social media and market your firm. With a private and vibrant Facebook group you can always turn to, the FirmFlex DIY plan gives you the ultimate control over your marketing. By using the FirmFlex DIY program, as well as our weekly coaching and industry-leading hacks, you can set your social media up for success, all for around $3 a day. Try it today at GetFirmFlex.com DIY. Thanks for listening to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get alerted every time a new episode is released. And to give us a five-star rating, you can also watch this podcast on our YouTube channel each week if you prefer to watch in the comfort of your office or stream it on ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com. The Connecticut Case Law Podcast is sponsored by Ruane Attorneys at Law, the Connecticut Trial Firm, and Rich Rockland Law. Attorney Jay Ruane, Connecticut Jurist Number 415988, is responsible for the content of this advertisement. See you next week.